Ken's out of town, and he asked uh, me and Sean to do kind of a co-sermon this morning. Um, and I want to talk to you about kind of my uncanny ability to put the God of the universe in this box. Um, and that should sound somewhat of, you know, a contradiction that you could take the creator of the heavens and the earth, the infinite being of love and substance and joy and grandeur and throw him into a box this big. Um, but the reality is, is that's what I do often. Um, I take that God that I kind of verbally claim to be larger than life, powerful, in love with me, concerned about my every action, and I throw him into this box where he gets dwarfed by my circumstances. Um, and I carry this box with all those characteristics of that God in here, and through my actions, I let this little God, when compared with the concerns of this world, um, with circumstances that seem out of control, I let this little God um, be put aside. And I don't, I don't let him be who he really wants to be in my life. And there's a character in Scripture that I think does this same thing. And if you'll turn, if you have a Bible, to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we'll go ahead and look at this passage. Graham, you can throw up that first map. It's a unique time in history. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's a unique time in history. It's about 1,000 B.C. Uh, the second Iron Age has just begun, and the major players on the world scale, the major powers, um, Egypt in the south, uh, the Hittites in the north, and where it says Padan Aram over there on the right, that's where Assyria or Babylonia would be. Those kingdoms are kind of dormant right now. They are in recession. They are focused internally and not externally. And for the last couple thousand years, what the Egyptians have been doing and what the Hittites or the Assyrians in the north have been doing is they've been forcing themselves down in this area right in the middle. And where you see it says Arabia, to the left of that is Israel. They've been fighting over that land and they've been using that land as a highway to get to one another. The Egyptians want what the Hittites or the Assyrians have. The Assyrians want what the Egyptians have, and so they use that area in between their two kingdoms as their route, their highway to get there. It's very fascinating. Israel, I'm sure you're aware, is, is God's chosen people, and they have a, a specific task in Scripture. And their task is laid out in, in the first couple chapters of Genesis is to be blessed by God and then to, in turn, take that blessing and give that to the world. That's their job. It's a very simple task. Receive God's blessing and then be a blessing to the world. Look at where God puts them. In the ancient Near East, this is the hub of civilization. Everybody passes through this gateway right here in the middle. It's where God could be most impactful through his people to the world. And the question that the Israelites are asking themselves around 1,000 B.C. because these big kingdoms, they're dormant, they're not putting pressure on them, is all of a sudden the Israelite kingdoms and these smaller, Graham, you can go to the next slide, these smaller areas like Philistia, it says down there, there's the Philistines and Moab, there's the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Aramites all, all up there in the north. These smaller tribal states, they're asking themselves at this time, what do we do now? There's no force from these big pressures like Egypt and Assyria on us. We're starting to see that we have more resources to spend on our own and focus internally on our own kingdoms. And so each of them, 
these tribal states kind of unify and they set up kings and they solidify their power. And all of a sudden, a race is on. A race is on for the Philistines. They set up their king and their, their god at this time, Dagon, they believe is telling them, well, we need to expand our kingdom. And so they start putting pressure on Israel. Israel at this time, or in Samuel, does not have a king. But they start asking for a king. They start putting their focus on being, because at this time, the question is, how are we going to be God's people, but yet function in a world where everywhere around us, we have pressures on us to kind of be like the rest of the world. And it's interesting, the Philistines are putting pressure on Israel. And so they feel that instead of being ruled by God, which he'd set it up, and then maybe God mediated through judges like Samuel is the last of, we want a king. We want someone to rule us, to, to secure our place in, in society. Um, and so they're begging God, essentially, for a king. And if you look down in your Bibles, I'll, I'll read it. Um, the first king of Israel is Saul. Samuel has chosen. Samuel is the Lord's last judge. He's also a prophet. Takes on the role of a priest as well. And what Saul, um, what Saul is, as God's anointed, is he is the first king of Israel. Um, and you actually keep that map up there, Graham. We're starting verse two. Let's we'll start in verse one. Actually, chapter thirteen of First Samuel. Saul was. What does it say in your Bibles? 30, 30 years old. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a word missing there in the, in the original Hebrew. So it says, Saul was 30 years old, probably, maybe 40, when he began to reign, and he reigned how many years? 40 years. Um, again, there's another verse missing, a word missing there. But he reigned 40 years over Israel. Verse 2. Saul chooses 3,000 out of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and uh, the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home. Saul has, has done some, and he has completed a unique task. He's unified the Israelites um, to fight against the Philistines, to kind of solidify military power and protect, uh, protect Israel. So 2,000 of his troops were with Saul at Michmash. And do you see where, um, can you read Bethel? You see where it says Israel on there? Just to the left of that, in between Shechem and Israel there, that's where Michmash is. And just, just to the south of that would be Geba. I don't think it says it on there. It's pretty hard for me to see. Um, so 2,000 are with, Jonathan, uh, with Saul and 1,000 are with Jonathan. Jonathan goes down and he defeats the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. What the Philistines have done, you see where they are on the map, they have marched their troops up around the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea there, and they're around the area near Jericho. They're putting pressure on Israel. This is good land here. And they're saying, we would like your good land. And so they send military forces there to start putting pressure on Israel. Israel feels this pressure, and Jonathan, Saul's son, reacts. And he goes and defeats this garrison. Middle of verse 3. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. When all Israel heard that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines, the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Gilgal is just north of Jericho. You can see that. You can see Jericho on the map. It's just a couple miles north of Jericho. So the scene is set. Saul and the forces of Israel are down near Jericho. Just up in the mountains, up and to the left by, by Shiloh up there is uh, the Philistine force and What's interesting is Philistines had sent out this little army. It had been defeated, but it's not going to be long before they react. Verse 5. 
And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, it may say 3,000 in yours, and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth which is Bethel. Verse 6, when the Israelites saw that they were in distress, for the troops were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves, in holes, in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, he was still at Gilgal, but the people with him were trembling. Do you get the scene? The Israelites have felt the pressure from the Philistines. They've gone and they've done something probably pretty good. They've, they've pushed the forces of the Philistines back, but the Philistines react harshly. They gather troops. They, they basically, from Philistia, which is the modern-day Gaza Strip, they bring troops up in the multitudes, the, the numbers of the sand on the seashore, and they are putting a force, and they're actually up in the hill country, and Saul and his forces are down at Jericho, and they are rumbling. War needs to start soon. If the Israelites are going to be successful, because the Israelites, remember, they only have 3,000 troops, and there are thousands and thousands of these Philistines. If Israel is going to take a tactical advantage, if you will, they need to start this battle soon. But what's happening to their people? As more and more Philistines come in, more and more Israelites leave. It's, it's not a good system for the Israelites. Okay? And they're fleeing out into the country, and they're actually some of them are even joining forces with the Philistines. Because their thought is, let's be on the winning team. Saul waits, verse 8, seven days. Samuel had given Saul a charge based on the word of the Lord to wait seven days for me at Gilgal. Wait on the Lord, he basically says. I'll come. I'll make the burnt offering that we make before we go to battle. I'll see what the instructions of God are, and then we'll go, and we'll go from there. So Saul does this. He waits, verse 8. Saul waits seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people began to slip away from Saul. Saul has a unique opportunity here. He's down on his luck. Uh, as we read on later in the text, we find out that Saul and the Israelites actually were really down on their luck because they didn't have iron weapons like the Philistines. There are obviously, there's a huge discrepancy between the number of people that are fighting here. Um, the Israelites, they're, they're down to 600 people as we find out later in the text versus thousands and thousands and thousands. Saul Seeing his people slip away has to do something. He has to take action. But, but the problem is, and he has every reason, every right to take action. The problem is taking action on his own, taking things into his own hands is a violation of the command of the Lord. Regardless of the circumstances that he's facing, the things he's seeing around him, it is a direct violation of a command of the God of the universe to do what he does next. Let's read that. Verse 9, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the offerings of well-being, and he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, guess who shows up? Samuel arrives, and Saul went out to meet him and salute him. Isn't that funny? Isn't that just the timing? Verse 11, Samuel says to him, what have you done? Saul replied, when I saw the people... When I saw that the people were slipping away from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines were mustering at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down upon me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom forever. 
but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people because you have not kept the command of the Lord. It's interesting. It's kind of tragic. Saul's kingdom actually is almost ripped from his hands based on his own actions before it even gets started. He's had one battle before this. This is his first engagement with that kind of mighty historical foe, foe, the Philistines. And before he can even really get that going, he makes a decision that jeopardizes his future. He has an opportunity, and I hope you're seeing the parallels to your own life because I sure do. He has an opportunity to take hold of the blessings and the opportunity to unify with God and God's mission to reach the world. And yet he chooses, because of his circumstances, to, I believe, not look at the grandeur of God, not look at the power of God, but look at his circumstances, say, boy, I'm down on my luck, my troops are leaving. I have every right in the world to take matters into my own hands. But he misses it, and it costs him dearly. The interesting thing about this passage is if you read into chapter 14, the battle goes on, and the battle is won by two people. The Israelites at one point had 3,000 against hundreds of thousands or whatever it may be. They were down to 600. God eventually uses two people to gain victory. All of a sudden, Saul's concerns about how he's outnumbered, how it's not a military advantage because he's been waiting so long, how he doesn't have the same weapons, all these human concerns that have been clogging his mind, that have been making God seem like he's more, well, less like the God of the universe who can deliver his people with, with anything, with a snap of his fingers, he looks more like this box. He's small, he's dwarfed by the circumstances of the world. Um, I have the music team come up, and they're going to play for you a song And what I'd like you to think about while they're playing this song is who is God in your life? Um, Is God, if you need this stool, you can have it. Is God the God of the universe for you verbally as well as in your actions, in your dependence, in your faith? Or is he kind of small, dwarfed by the circumstances of the world, dwarfed by your own insecurities, by situations that are going on in your life that make really take your focus off of God and what he can do in the world and what he wants to do, do through you. Wh- which God is it that you choose daily? Thanks, guys. <clears throat> uh, I'm Sean Kent, and i um, excited to share with you guys this morning. It's interesting, um, and thank you, Brandon, excellent job of just kind of laying everything out there. Um, it's interesting how similar we are to Saul in that... Um, when we take our eyes off of God and we see the circumstance, we see the troops coming down or our men scattering, things look like they're getting kind of shaky, right? It's getting hot in the kitchen. And man, you know, that's, it's all part of the norm when we take our eyes off of God to kind of, to kind of freak out and take matters into our own hands. And I feel like just to start off, I need to make a confession to you guys. You know how uh, they've been doing those meet, meet the so-and-sos in, in the bulletins? They did meet the Kents. And, and for those of you who have gone through this, you know what I'm talking about. They, there's one question that says, uh, what one habit do you wish you could break? And for me, it was worry. So I stand before you saying, I know this subject well. As a matter of fact, I was digging back through some old photos. And uh, Graham, you want to go ahead and put that first photo up there? That's, that's a picture of me. Uh, this week, I was doing my bills. And uh, my wife came in. I didn't know she, she came in, but... 
and she took that picture. And then the next one actually is, that's from me in high school. I was, you see my computer over here in the corner? I was, there was a, uh, there was a uh, computer exam, like a test that we had to take. I was kind of worried about that. And, and it actually kind of goes all the way back to my early, early childhood. Go ahead, Graham. That's, uh, you can see my friends there. They look real happy, but I was kind of worried. I was worried about my, my next meal. I was worried about my diaper, you know, stuff like that. No, I'm just... So, you know, I really, I really know this subject well. I really do. And, and the crazy thing about this is that, you know, my wife is here. My friends are here. My brother's here. My sister's here. My circle is here. So I'm going to stand before you and say, hey, you know, we're not supposed to do this. And they're all going to be going, hey, remember when you gave the message? You know, you need to remember your own words. So isn't it just like God to kind of orchestrate something like this? But, you know, Saul had specific instructions. You know, for Saul, it was, wait for me. Wait for me. And, and, and then he made Saul a promise. You know, and we learned there, you know, he was going to establish his kingdom for all time. But, but Saul, Saul, I think, probably focused too much on the promise and too little on the instruction. So as I reflected on this, I thought, you know, well, what are our instructions? So turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4. Um, you know, we know the Bible is full of promises, right? I mean, we've all heard how he, how he, you know, feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field and, and how, uh, you know, I mean, he's, just, he's our provision. He's going to take care of us. We know those things, right? The promise, but, but we lose sight of the instruction a lot of times. That's, that's what I think. At least that's what I think goes on in my life. So, so here he says in Philippians 4, you guys there? Boy, we're quiet. You guys are there? All right, so 4.6, Philippians 4.6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So 4.6 is the instruction. He says, be anxious for nothing. And then in verse 7 is the promise, the peace that surpasses all understanding. So why be anxious for nothing? Well, one, your angst changes nothing. I mean, when's the last time, you know, Fred, he comes to me, says, hey, man, what are you doing this weekend? Man, my bills, you know, they're getting kind of crazy, and you know, the bank account is running low. And I, you know, I'm just going to worry. I, I'm going to, you go ahead, you do what you're going to do. You're watching the Cowboys or whatever, but I, I'm going to shut myself in my office because, man, I need some money. And I just think, you know, if I wring my hands and I worry and I sweat over it, boy, you know, it's just, it's going to work out. It, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Our angst changes nothing. Furthermore, it's irreverent because it tells God it's, it's another it's another way of us telling God, God, yeah, I know, I know, I know you are, you know, omnipresent and you're God of the universe, but, you know, Brandon, I use your box, man. Thanks for bringing it. You know, it says, yeah, but my, my situation's bigger. So, so our angst changes nothing and it's irreverent. It's kind of a slap, slap in the face to God. Yet, God, the promise is for peace, right? And, and how can we have peace? How can we have peace when we're anxious? So he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and petition. Some, the, the original Hebrew text actually talks about, um, some of your, some of your uh, translations may say by prayer and supplication. And the word supplication means more um, like to come before God humbly, earnestly, to ask in prayer humbly. Not pridefully, not like, 
Not like, oh, God, you know, I, I know you can do this, but if you don't, it's cool because I did it last time and I can hook it up. You know, it, it's not like that. Not, not pride. It's, it's coming before God humbly, not greedily like, God, you know, I know I don't really deserve this, but I just really want this. You know, I mean, my, my bills, yeah, they're crazy, but, man, just put 20 grand in my bank account, God. That'd be really cool, you know. I mean, that's, it's, it's, not about, it's not about coming before him greedily or pridefully, but humbly and earnestly. And with thanksgiving, that's, that's the next part. It's like we're supposed to look back and say, not, not thank you, not thank you, God, for you know, bringing these troops down on me, not thank you, God, for my troops scattering, but remember how he hooked you up last week. Thank you, God, for that. You've provided for me before. I know I can trust you. Yes, this seems big. My circumstances seem big. Yes, my men are scattering. Man, there's a lot more of them than there are me and my guys. And my guys are leaving. They're joining them. But you're bigger than that. And you took care of that situation that I had before. So thank you. So we're to look back at him in thanks. And then it says, let your request be made known to God. Now, parents, you'll know what I'm talking about when I, when I talk about, you know, kids. And I have two kids. My daughter is three. A lot of you know her, Ellie. And, um, you know, she comes to me, Daddy, can I have some candy? And I give her candy. I probably give her more candy than her mom gives her. What do you think? Maybe. <laughs> I give her candy, you know, but I can't give her candy every time she asks for candy. I just can't do that because it's not good for her. She wants to watch a movie. Parents, you know how many times you watch movies. I mean, you watch movies over and over and over again. You know, you memorize them because you've seen them so many times. But if she wanted to watch a movie, I mean, if I let her watch a movie as much as she wants to watch the movie, she'd be eating candy, sitting on the couch, watching the movie. I mean, it's, it's bad. It'd be bad, right? We know that. Yet sometimes that's our approach with God. We think, okay, don't be anxious, you know, Make my request known. Okay, come before him humbly and say, okay, God, now hook it up, man. Where's the 20 grand in the bank account, right? It's, it, and so he's not going to do that all the time. He's, he's not going to just always give us what we want. Yet there's still the promise. Now, the promise is, I'm, I'll read it again. Verse 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God knows that we need the peace more than we need the candy more than we need to watch the movie or whatever it is that we think we want. He knows we need the peace. We need the peace. And the peace can come through him changing our circumstances. He's certainly capable of changing our circumstances. But the peace can come in the midst of our circumstances. And I think that's what we often miss. That's what I miss. I think, boy, these circumstances, how can I find peace in these circumstances? So Rich Waller, you guys... A lot of you know Rich Waller. He, was, uh, he, he leads Mosaic. He was in that video, and uh, we worked together. And so I was sitting in his office, and we were talking about this. We were talking about the, the, the message today and, and uh, talking about my life. And I was probably freaking out about something. Not probably. I was freaking out about something when I went in, and we were talking about something. Yeah. See, I'm being real before you guys. Um, so anyway, so we were talking, and I think God spoke through him. He gave him a diagram. And so, Graham, let's go ahead and put that up. I think, you know, the first one. Yeah, perfect. I think that um, in a lot of ways we're like this. There we are. We're all the center of our own universe, right? I mean, we're all the center of our own universe. So there we are, center of our own universe. And there's our circumstances. 
And a, a lot of times our, circumstance, our circumstances shape our perspective. And that results in a decision or an action. I think Saul was like this next slide. There's God, right? There's God. And, you know, he knows, he knows that God made a promise to him. Yet he's allowing his circumstances to shape his perspective, which results in a decision or an action. And I think what God really calls for us is this next slide. He's everywhere. He's bigger than our circumstances. But him being bigger than our circumstances means that he's also in our circumstances. We're in a relationship with him. It's not one way. It's both ways. And he's there with us. And when we know that and we recognize that, it doesn't necessarily change our circumstances. It changes our perspective. And it's that change in perspective that will oftentimes result in a different decision, a different action, and give you the promise of peace. So I'm going to end with a story. Um, you guys know who Corey Ten Boom is? Everybody said yes. Well, for those of you who don't know, she, um, she spent a lot of time in concentration camps. She, she was in concentration camps at a very young age. And... Um, she, when, she, when she got done, when she was finally released, it was actually on kind of a mistake that was made. But when she was released, she, um, she spent a lot of years writing books and lecturing and things like that. And, and uh, this is entitled, Don't Run Ahead of God. Corey Ten Boom learned a powerful lesson as a little girl. Having encountered the cold, lifeless body of a baby, she realized the reality of death would someday strike her family too. Perhaps her father, mother, or sister Betsy would soon die. She anxiously worried about these possibilities until her father came in one night and tucked her into bed. Corey burst into tears and sobbed, I need you. You can't die. You can't. Her father sat on the edge of the narrow bed and spoke tenderly to his daughter. Corey, he said gently, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? She sniffed a few times, considered the question. Why, just before I get on the train, she said. Exactly, he continued. Then he gave her assurance that was to last a lifetime. He told her that a wise God knows when she will need things too. Don't run out ahead of God, he cautioned her. When the time comes that some of us have to die, you'll look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Corey and her family were sent to concentration camps where she suffered greatly during World War II. She indeed was to experience the deaths of her parents and sister as well as numerous friends. She was to endure hardships which she could never have imagined as a young child. But the words of her father stayed with her and proved to be true. You will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Regardless of the suffering or hardship she encountered, when she looked inside her heart, she found the strength she needed. If you find yourself worried or anxious about an uncertain future, perhaps you're running ahead. You've not yet been, giving the ticket, not yet been given the ticket for the journey. And if that thing, thing you fear should ever arrive, it is then you must look inside your heart. The strength you need can be found there just in time. Um, so I'm going to end with this challenge, and it really, it's, it's, it's two-part, and I'm really, I mean, I'm, I'm talking to myself here. I, the, the first thing is, if you're like that first diagram, and all you have is you and your circumstances, I remember being in that place. Um, how could you allow your, I mean, how could your life be any different than for your circumstances to shape your decisions, your perspective, your actions? If you're like that, and all this talk that I'm, that I'm saying about, you know, how God can, can be a part of the picture just sounds foreign to you. 
and you want to learn more, then talk to me, talk to Brandon, talk to people. Tell somebody. I remember being in that place. It's a good place to be, really, because you're here, and you're searching. And I remember searching. I, I, in, I, my walk with Christ began as a sophomore in high school, but I started going to church as a late eighth grader, kind of ninth grader. Went for a long time and listened and thought, oh, man, what's that guy talking about? You know? So keep coming and ask and, and talk to people. And then two, if you're like me or like Brandon said he is, and you sometimes do this with God, I challenge you to recognize that not only do we have promise, but we have instruction. Let's go ahead and have the worship team come back up. Not only do we have promise, but we have instruction. And don't just look at the promise, but focus on the instruction and follow the instruction because it will lead you to the promise. And the promise is not for your circumstance to change, but for you to have peace. And that's so important. God wants that for us. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for a, for a time where we can reflect on your words. Um, we thank you so much for the ways you have provided for us, Lord. We pray now that uh, as we continue in, a, in an attitude of worship that we could just honor and exalt you with our words and with our hearts, Lord. Thank you for your presence here. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go ahead and sing that song again, uh, the one that they did in between there, I Will Follow You. Let's, let's do it, you know. Let's, let's, let's see God for who he is.